Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Hey, what's up, everyone? It is CW. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs radio show. We continued our series with the Medical Association of Georgia this week, and we were talking about prescription drug abuse and overdose leading to the deaths of thousands of people around the United States and here in Georgia. As this epidemic has continued to grow, outpacing a number of other major causes of death of Americans, more and more emphasis is being placed on making us better aware of how to handle prescription medications when we have them, not to share them, how to store them safely, and how to dispose of them safely, all of which can go a long way towards protecting our loved ones particularly our children in the home. And that's where a lot of this comes from. Easy access to medications that are laying around the medicine cabinet and on our countertops. We also took a look at Georgia's 911 medical amnesty law. And under this measure, a unit dose of naloxone, which is an effective non-addictive prescription medication that reverses the effects of opioid drug overdoses, it can be delivered on an intranasal or intramuscular basis by first responders, law enforcement officers, firefighters, EMS professionals, and others when they are in position to assist a patient who is at risk of experiencing an opioid overdose. An opioid overdose can cause the patient to stop breathing, and then obviously that leads to significant brain damage and death ultimately, if not acted upon very quickly. In an effort to make sure that these at-risk patients are given this treatment in a timely fashion, the 911 medical amnesty law provides limited immunity for individuals who possess certain drugs and drug paraphernalia when they experience a drug overdose and are in need of medical care, or for people who seek medical care on behalf of a person who is experiencing a drug overdose, as well as for certain underage drinking offenses for minors who seek medical care during an alcohol overdose. We've all heard the stories of young people who have perished unnecessarily when they were experiencing an overdose of drugs or alcohol and people had been in their presence knowing that they were in serious danger and clearly very sick due to alcohol or drug overdose, but they were too fearful to call for help because they were afraid that they would face legal or criminal ramifications. Here's Dallas with an introduction to the Think About It campaign trying to raise awareness about prescription drug abuse and how we're combating overdose. The Think About It campaign started about five years ago with the original intention is to make both the public and the medical profession more aware of prescription drug abuse. So we came out very early on with what we call four steps, which is take only as prescribed, do not share your medicines, store them safely, dispose of them promptly. When we look at the overall epidemic of drug overdose deaths in the United States, which now is about 48,000 deaths in the United States, prescription drugs lead the way. And while heroin gets a lot of attention in the press, the CDC tells us that about 75% of those people on heroin started with the prescription drugs. So our first intent was to make people aware of prescription drug abuse. And through that, we've distributed quite a bit of literature throughout the state in medical facilities that help to educate both public and the physicians. We've done a number of speeches. My Co-chairman, Dr. Tennant Slack, is a pain medicine doctor who's provided invaluable knowledge to advise people. And then, more lately, we've been engaged in another major project 
called Project Dan. So on the first part, we're looking at awareness of drug abuse. Then we go to the other end of the spectrum of drug abuse, which is someone laying on the floor from drug overdose, dying. How can we save that person, give them another chance? And here's adolescent medicine and addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Shanali Saha, talking about the change in demographics of those who are really significantly impacted by prescription drug abuse. Check it out. I mean, America has been struggling with opiates for way before this decade, right? So veterans struggled in the Civil War with morphine after the war was over. This has been an an age-old struggle. But what's different about the epidemic currently is the Journal of American Medicine did a a piece last year about the changing face of heroin. That was the title of the article. And essentially in the 60s, if you looked at who was going to treatment, it was your indigent, minority, 30 to 50-year-old male in the cities, usually coming home from Vietnam. And today the epidemic has a very different face. It is the 18 to 25-year-old suburban white male and female who is most at risk for addiction and overdose. And in doing that, the fortunate thing is is that we are now having policy changes that really approach drug addiction as a health problem as opposed to as a legal one. Because up until this point, we really have failed to really have sustainable improvement in drug treatment outcomes in the United States because so much of our resource really does go to law enforcement with this problem. Yes. And so the unfortunate thing about the changing face is now senators and judges and doctors and lawyers are losing their children and their grandchildren. And so it is forcing America to look at this problem as a health problem and address it. So being white, rich, and especially female used to be protective of, of substance use, but that's no longer the case. These are the kids that are the most vulnerable. And so th- these are the kids that I, I work with every day. Stick around for the full discussion about the Think About It campaign, Project Dan, the Georgia 911 amnesty law with Dallas Gay and Dr. Shanali Saha coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thank you for making us a part of your day today. And as is our standard on the second and fourth Tuesdays of every month, we've got the folks from Medical Association of Georgia with us in the studio today. And we're going to be talking about a subject that is is an important one for sure that I'm glad to help share some information about and raise some broad awareness so that folks can advocate on its behalf in their respective communities. I'm joined in the studio by Dallas Gay. He's the community chair for the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation Think About It campaign. And Dr. Shanali Saha, she's an adolescent medicine and addiction medicine physician from Georgia Behavioral Health Professionals in Smyrna. And we're going to be talking a little about the Georgia 911 medical amnesty law and the Think About It campaign. We'll get an update on on where they are because I know they've got another project within that that they're using to continue to raise awareness around the availability of naloxone to treat and prevent overdoses with opiates in, in the state. So y'all, I really appreciate you taking some time. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Glad yeah. to be here. Now, Dallas, I'll start with you because I had you in the studio where I got a chance early on in the show when we first started working with Medical Association of Georgia and we had a chance to talk about the Think About It campaign not too awful long after you got it rolled out. Introduce people to the Think About It campaign, what we're trying to achieve through that initiative. I know you have a personal story that ties into one of the reasons why you're so passionate about it. You've experienced it firsthand in terms of how it can affect your family and cause loss sooner than it should happen. So introduce folks to the campaign here and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other things you got going on with it. Certainly. Uh, the Think About It campaign started about five years ago with the original intention is to make both the public and the medical profession more aware of prescription drug abuse. So we came out very early on with what we call four steps, which is take only as prescribed, do not share your medicines, store them safely, 
dispose of them promptly. When we look at the overall epidemic of drug overdose deaths in the United States, which now is about 48,000 deaths in the United States, prescription drugs lead the way. And while heroin gets a lot of attention in the press, the CDC tells us that about 75% of those people on heroin started with the prescription drugs. So our first intent was to make people aware of prescription drug abuse. And through that, we've distributed quite a bit of literature throughout the state in medical facilities that help to educate both public and the physicians. We've done a number of speeches. My co-chairman, Dr. Tennant Slack, is a pain medicine doctor who's provided invaluable knowledge to advise people. And then more lately, we've been engaged in another major project called Project Dan. So on the first part, we're looking at awareness of drug abuse. Then we go to the other end of the spectrum of drug abuse, which is someone laying on the floor from drug overdose, dying. How can we save that person, give them another chance? And when we're talking about prescription drug abuse, I, I think that logically a lot of people will think about the various types of pain medications that are out there, because that's how it happens. A lot of times someone will have an injury, they'll need to take Percocet, for example, being one of the ones I've experienced, someone in my family that dealt with that have to take the medication for a period of time and develop a dependency upon it before they are recovered. Um, and, and so then they end up dealing with that. But we're not just talking about pain meds. It's, it's, a, it's a host of different prescription medications that can be used and abused for beyond what they are intended for. So the leading cause of preventable death in the United States is due to prescription drug overdose. And of those deaths, the majority of them are opiate-based. But the next category, which I think is something, especially working with young adults that I'm seeing more and more of, is things like benzodiazepines, which are pr mm. routinely prescribed for anxiety, um, but also have high addictive potential. And a lot of our young people are exposed to polypharmacy because unlike the generation kind of all the ones before them, you know, alcohol and marijuana were normative in high schools. But as medical technology has progressed, so too has the unfortunate array of drugs that are now available for abuse for young people. So while uh, prescription drug overdose in general really is an opiate-based problem, we are seeing evolving data of other deaths related to other types of prescription drugs. Even things like ADHD drugs, for example, they're apparently able to utilize that in ways other than what it's intended. Yeah. Young and people, you know, in general, they experiment. That's it's normative to experiment in adolescence. However, it's not so much death that we see with ADHD medications, but there are a lot of other adverse okay. effects. And what other studies have shown is just even the experimentation of using ADHD pills before exams in college right. makes you more likely to be a substance user in other aspects, more likely to smoke marijuana chronically, more likely to be having alcohol dependence problems. So, you know, because access equals use, and more likely a teenager is going to be prescribed a stimulant over a prescription opiate. I it see. is true that a lot more young people are abusing, young people like teenagers are abusing ADHD medications, but it's really our 17 to 25-year-old young adult population that's very, very vulnerable to the opiate epidemic. And like Mr. Gay was saying, there's something like 80% of the current young heroin users started with some type of prescription pill at some point. And just to give a, a measure of the, the size of the problem here in Georgia, and this is an older statistic from 2012, but on law.ga.gov, it's talking about the prescription of drug abuse issue in the state of Georgia. And it stated that the GBI accounted for prescription drugs playing a role in 592 deaths that year. 152 of 159 counties experienced uh, a loss. Keep in mind that the GBI statistics do not include seven counties in metropolitan yeah. Atlanta. So, I mean, so, yeah. 
you might at least double that number yeah. or more. And just cause of death in general can sometimes be very hard to capture, That's especially right. yeah. for law agencies, let alone medical facilities. Yeah, that may be involved in a motor vehicle accident, for right. example. And- or a suicide that was actually under the influence of another substance. With the Project Dan element within Think About It, what are we trying to do there? We're trying to prevent the death from the heroin or the opiate overdose with naloxone. That's correct. Now, Loxin is a, an opiate antagonist that's been around since 1971 when it was approved by the FDA. It, it existed in uh, hospitals. It existed with EMS personnel, but it's not existed out in the public. So in 2014, Governor Deal signed a new law called the 911 Medical Amnesty slash Naloxone law, which made Naloxone more widely available. So we took that concept of two things in that law. One, a person can receive amnesty if they call 911 in good faith to save someone who's in a, an overdose situation. And second, it provided immunity for using naloxone. So what Dan did, we applied to the Medical Center Foundation in Gainesville for a, a grant, which we received in October, of about excuse me, $282,000 with the proposal that we would spend at least 70% of that on naloxone for law enforcement. The reason for law enforcement, if it's a 911 call coming in, law enforcement is almost always the first to arrive on the scene. So when you're in an opiate overdose, time is critical. Time is tissue being destroyed in in a brain through starvation of oxygen. So the very first person on the scene who can administer the antidote, naloxone, has the best chance of protecting that tissue in that person's life. And now it was an innovative device that you've brought in with you. We were looking at it before we went on the air that they're using to administer the the naloxone, also known as Narcan. And it had been a, a device that was basically fashioned out of a syringe that was converted to be able to allow it to be sprayed through that syringe into the into the nasal cavities but they've now turned it into a device that is basically like an inhaler or a, think about a nasal spray uh, mystifier that's correct this is a brand new fda approved device it's, it's uh, produced by adapt pharma and it's called a narcan nasal spray so it's a single piece device and it only requires that it be uh, unwrapped from the package, placed in the nostril, a plunger pushed, and four milligrams of naloxone will be de- deployed into the nasal passages. There's other things that we teach on how to uh, deal with the person beyond just the, the naloxone, but that's part of our overall program of, of going out and training law enforcement. And before we went on this morning, you were talking about the fact that it's already helping people in the state. Well, our, our program started uh, in the fall, and we have uh, trained four departments, four county sheriff departments that have received the naloxone. Already, there have been four recoveries using those kits. Three of those were heroin. One of them was a person who simply mixed up, didn't understand their prescription, mm. did not read English, 
and took too many opiate painkillers for some dental surgery and went into overdose. So it's not just addicts that uh, stand to benefit from this. There's some key components to the Think About It campaign that we're trying to drive home both for the people in the home that have medications laying around in terms of how they deal with those and store those. Um, Same for some similar messages for physicians out there in the community as to how they prescribe and, and monitor. Can you talk about some of those things that we're trying to educate people about? Certainly. Uh, when you look at the number of uh, prescription drugs that find their way diverted into some form of abuse, about 70% of those come from family and friends, either by outright gift to them or someone simply found them in the home. So I know in my own personal experience, when my, my grandson we discovered was using prescription drugs without a prescription, I remembered I had some drugs in my cabinet unlocked. And by the time I went to that cabinet to secure those drugs, they were already gone. So by advising people that these are dangerous drugs, they shouldn't be in the hands of anyone else other than the person who has the prescription. We advise them to keep them safely locked up, promptly dispose of them. As a part of our project, Dan, we're donating drug drop boxes to various law enforcement agencies. In virtually every county, and most major cities in the state now have a drop box that a person can go in. looks like a big mailbox, and you just walk in the door, open the lid, and drop your uh, dangerous drugs in there, and then they go to incineration. So awareness is part of it. And then the, the, the second part with Project Dan and Nell Oxen, any individual who's potentially at the scene of an overdose, a father, a mother, you know, with a child that's abusing, or a coworker, or a friend, can now get a prescription for naloxone and have that in their home. And then there's some basic first aid things. I, I'll call them three steps to save a life. Call 911, use naloxone, give overdose first aid. Now, the device that you have here, can I go to my pharmacist? If, I, if I'm somebody that, that apparently you, you talk about the fact that you learned before his, his ultimate death that, that your grandson was um, having some problems with prescription medication abuse. In that kind of an instance, can somebody go to a pharmacy and say, I would like to get one of these kits so I can have it in my home in case you know, that happens in their presence? Or do they have to get it from, you know, be administered through the first responders? Uh, it's available to anyone. In the state of Georgia, it's still by prescription, but we're finding a number of other states have, have taken it off the prescription list and made it over the counter. So anyone who might be at the scene of an overdose, simply go to their doctor, say, I would like a prescription for naloxone. It's an extremely safe drug. It's not subject to abuse. And uh, it's not subject to adverse consequences, side effects of giving it. So it's extremely safe. No reason that anyone shouldn't carry this if they potentially could be at the scene of an overdose. It works very quickly, too. I, we used to, well, I'm sure they still do. It's been long ago since I was in the hospital working in the, in the unit. But if you needed to reverse some narcotics on board, it definitely did it. I mean, you know, the pain effects and everything are reversed immediately. So it's very, very effective in that kind of situation. And Dr. Saha, go ahead. I just want to speak about co-prescribing because I think in terms of what physicians can do to help uh, fight the epidemic through Narcan uh, prescription, uh, naloxone prescription. So there's a lot of effort both here statewide, the Georgia Society for Addiction Medicine that I'm a part of that also is working on the Project Dan campaign with Medical Association of 
Georgia Foundation, as well as ASAM nationally, the American Society for Addiction Medicine, is very big on policies that really encourage co-prescribing so that any physician who's prescribing a narcotic is also prescribing naloxone at the same time for the very reasons that Mr. Gay mentioned. A dentist who's giving a few days of medication may think, oh, this person is not a drug addict. Why would I give them naloxone? Well, it turns out accidents happen, and we are seeing that they are killing Americans, you know, more so than motor vehicle accidents, burns, and drowning combined. Hmm. Um, So, you know, as physicians, we are a major contributor to the current prescription drug epidemic. You know, in the 90s, we really did not understand as a culture in medicine how dangerous these drugs were. We uh, relied on a lot of literature that told us that if you undertreat pain, you're being inhumane. And so we saw this escalation in prescription opiate administration. And what we're finding now is that doctors are much more educated about this. There's a huge curb in their prescribing of opiates, but it's still incredibly commonly prescribed medication. And so, you know, I am an addictionologist. I I care for exclusively people who are uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol. But I really encourage primary care providers dentists, any type of surgeon, anyone who's prescribing this to concurrently be prescribing naloxone. And there are efforts both statewide and nationwide to make it now law that if you are prescribing this, you have to prescribe this other medicine at the same time. And I think one of the important things to think about with naloxone is it really is an emergency medicine. It is not a treatment for substance use. So beyond, you know, if a family member discovers that their loved one is struggling with opiates, beyond getting Narcan just for emergencies, just like a diabetic needs glucagon or sugar pills, or someone with a bee allergy needs an EpiPen, they also need to see an allergist. And they also need to see an endocrinologist if they have diabetes. Likewise, you know, if you have a, a family member struggling with these things, the sooner you get them into care or bring their, their concerns to a medical provider, the more likely they are to have a more comprehensive approach to their treatment, of which naloxone is just a safeguard. And you were talking about the age range, and I mentioned some statistics, and you you both were agreeing that that was probably well underreported. I'm sure the literature you read has probably got some very sobering statistics. I mean, how how big of a problem is this really? Well, I think one of the the interesting things about the current opiate, I mean, America has been struggling with opiates for way before this decade, right? So veterans struggled in the Civil War with morphine after the war was over. This has been an an age-old struggle. But what's different about the epidemic currently is the Journal of American Medicine did a a piece last year about the changing face of heroin. That was the title of the article. And essentially in the 60s, if you looked at who was going to treatment, it was your indigent, minority, 30 to 50-year-old male in the cities, usually coming home from Vietnam. And today the epidemic has a very different face. It is the 18 to 25-year-old suburban white male and female who is most at risk for addiction and overdose. And in doing that, the fortunate thing is is that we are now having policy changes that really approach drug addiction as a health problem as opposed to as a legal one. Because up until this point, we really have failed to really have sustainable improvement in drug treatment outcomes in the United States because so much of our resource really does go to law enforcement with this problem. And so the unfortunate thing about the changing face is now senators and judges and doctors and lawyers are losing their children and their grandchildren. And so it is forcing America to look at this problem as a health problem and address it. So being white, rich, and especially female used to be protective 
of, of substance use, but that's no longer the case. These are the kids that are the most vulnerable. And so th- these are the kids that I, I work with every day. We've been talking with adolescent medicine, addiction medicine physician, Dr. Shanali Saha and Dallas Gay about the efforts to curb prescription drug abuse through the Think About It campaign. And then of course, within the Think About It cam- campaign, Project Dan, which is trying to prevent deaths through the administration and availability of Narcan or Naloxone uh, in its generic name. Um, and clearly, as we've been talking with two, these two subject matter experts, it's a very large problem nationwide, as well as here in Georgia in particular. And Dr. Sahau, if I find someone in my family, someone I care about is dealing with this issue, I mean, what, what do I do? How do I, how do I proceed? Well, I think it's a very complicated question. And the first thing I would encourage you to do is not take it on by yourself, because a lot of family members, because of the shame of substance use, really do not seek out help, even from people like their physicians that they're routinely talking about very personal issues with, because they feel, especially if those family members are parents, that they failed in some way that their child is now using mm-hmm. substances. Mm-hmm. So there are a wide breadth of resources in terms of things like Families Anonymous, Al-Anon, Narc-Anon, the equivalents of what like Alcohols Anonymous and, and Narcotics Anonymous, but for family members that are free resources. Unfortunately, because of this epidemic, we actually have more and more young adult programming and adult programming here in Atlanta. This is um, because it's uh, a major city. We actually have some really great treat- treatment options here. But I think one of the hard things is, is that when you confront someone who is actively using and not ready to stop about their use, their brains literally are taken over by the substance and they will use some of more creative stories that they believe in the moment to tell you why this is not a problem and that they don't need you don't need to tell anybody else but that is far from true you need to garner a huge team of support to help address that issue with that person and it can be as easy as just first having them go for evaluation to understand from an expert the severity of their illness when my family member was going through treatment for prescription medication addiction, of course, a part of that process was for family members to be involved. We had to uh, go to the, the treatment facility on different times, and, and there were days basically where we were getting educated. And I thought it was very interesting on that topic you were just talking about with regards to the way the brain works. I think that the big disconnect for many, many people around whether we're talking about prescription medication, whatever the intoxicant is that somebody is utilizing to get high, if you will, the misconception that this is a choice. This is this is just a bad choice and yeah. you just need to decide to stop doing this. I was very intrigued by the notion that in the brain of that person, once they've had the right dose for the right period of time, such that the chemistry is starting to be altered and the brain, the brain's norms are changed chemically, that the midbrain or the lizard brain, if you will, mm-hmm. starts to shut down the cerebral cortex to protect ability to lay hands on the substance because the that inner brain there is telling you, I'm going to die if I don't have this. So mm-hmm. it's so you up there trying to say, no, you need to be quiet. It's interesting how it's able to take over. Yeah. Another kind of analogy I like to use for people is like the good Donald Duck on one shoulder and the devil Donald Duck on the other shoulder. And substances are um, affect the two kind of centers of the brain that are at the core of the brain. So what we what we call the lizard brain, because we share that part of that. So those same centers with lizards and reptiles. And that is driven by two things. One is the amygdala, which is about fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And the other is the pleasure center, the limbic system. So when drugs come on board, the amygdala is quieted down. So the anxiety and the fear subsides a little bit and the pleasure center is revved up. And then the prefrontal cortex is the good Donald Duck on the other shoulder, 
which is the top of the brain. And that, that's actually the last part of the brain to develop and so is very affected in adolescence. So if someone's using drugs since they were a teenager, that part of the brain is not going to be as fully formed. And that part of the brain is really responsible for emotion regulation and future orientation. So the idea that somebody is not thinking about their future consequences, they're not thinking about how to calm themselves down or how to make themselves not stressed out, all kind of makes sense if you think about what parts of the brain are being accentuated by addiction and which ones are being really impeded by it. As it relates to the physicians, we talked about how physicians are beginning to change their practice. How, how are they doing that? I mean, you, you mentioned the fact that used to pain pills would be prescribed on, I've seen, I've seen some of my own family members and I'm like, why did you get so, how how did you get so many, um, you know, 30 days worth of, of pain medicine for a simple injury. Mm -hmm. Uh, How are, how are our physicians starting to change the way they prescribe? And you talked about the possibilities of maybe even in some situations prescribing something like the naloxone along with it. So I think there's a lot of different organizations who are trying to promote awareness among physicians. And there are a couple of agreed upon tenets among those organizations, like the Federal State Medical Board of Examiners, the American Medical Association, American Society for Addiction Medicine. One of them is that we all need to, and, and physicians are doing this increasingly, check our prescription drug monitoring system. So Georgia has that one here. Anyone who has a DEA license has the ability to access the system. And in doing that, you can actually see for the patient you're about to prescribe medicines for where they've also gotten medicines in the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you can track the base database back several years. So where are all the pharmacies? Who are the prescribers? What were the drugs? What were the amounts? So it's very common that a patient comes to my office requesting one medication and then is very alarmed when I say, but Dr. So-and-so gave you that same medication last week. Um, It changes the whole nature of the interview. Another thing aside from co-prescribing naloxone is just overall uh, some of the the tenants educating patients about the addictive nature of their, their substances before they are on it. I have so many patients who said, my doctor just gave me these prescription pain pills for a month and then didn't tell me that I was going to go into withdrawals. Um, And you're not a drug addict if you have withdrawals from opiates. That's actually not a part of the diagnostic criteria because anyone who takes opiates for an extended period of time will become physiologically dependent on them. It's the nature of the drug. Even if you're taking it as prescribed, meaning every four hours, every six hours, whatever it is. Especially if you're taking it as prescribed every four hours because the, the brain does not like abrupt change. When you go from taking it every four hours to not taking it at all, you go through withdrawals. So it has to be tapered slowly over time. And so patients aren't often given that information. And so we're, we're educating doctors about doing that, and, and hopefully they are doing more of that. Other things that, um, that in, are involved in safe prescribing is making treatment agreements with patients around not getting early refills, not sharing their medications, disposing of medications properly. You know, these are not things that should be flushed. They will go into our water supply. Yeah. They should be taken to drop-off centers, um, like Mr. Gay was talking about, or they should be taken to pharmacies where they can be disposed of responsibly. I think the other thing that we all need to do is, is see people who are addicted to drugs as our patients. You know, in the same way that we can't say, I don't take care of obesity, and be an American physician. You can't really say, I don't take care of addiction and be an American physician anymore. It is a widespread American problem, and it shows up in all of our disciplines. And so we all have to start being more compassionate around that and less punitive because it's not working. Punishing addiction does not make it better. So how does the prescription drug abuse tie into illegal drug use if it does? So because of the physiologic dependence that has happened with any type of prescription opiate, over time, not immediately. It doesn't happen if you take it for three days after a wisdom tooth being pulled. But if you do take it for several weeks consistently, you will become physiologically dependent on it. And so for a lot of our young people, either the money ran out, 
grandpa figured out that somebody was stealing or um, the hookup they had went away. And heroin is a cheaper, faster uh, high. And we are in the Atlanta is one of the heroin distribution centers for the South. Um, Atlanta was constructed because as a transportation hub. And unfortunately, that has allowed for us to have an, an enormous amount of heroin come through our city to go to places like Alabama and Tennessee and things of that nature. So it's almost like a trajectory that after the pills, they go to the heroin. And and because of the ease of accessibility, you know, especially the, the kids in what we call the kind of platinum triangle, the Marietta, Alpharetta area, those guys can get drugs delivered to their houses. I had a patient this week told me, my parents took my phone, they took my keys, they took everything, but I had Facebook and I had my, my dealer bring it and, and drop it off at my doorstep when they were at work. So it, you know, again, the ingenuity gets big when you're addicted to a substance. Um, and the dealers are also quite savvy with this epidemic. They're, they're, they're clear on how to keep their clientele. Mm. Well, clearly it's easy to get your hands on. And I used to envision heroin being something that was expensive. It was an exotic thing, but I guess that shows how disconnected I am from that. I, I, I was very surprised to find out, no, it's actually quite inexpensive and it's very easy to get. Initially, <laughs> but yeah. when your habit gets to a couple hundred dollars a day, it is not sustainable. And that's when people do desperate things. With regards to the the amnesty law, how are you seeing that come into play with regards to this problem and, and how first responders are, are dealing with it when they show up on the scene? Well, it is an opportunity for someone to help save a life. And as long as they know about the amnesty law, I'll, I'll relate a personal story for you. In 2012, my grandson had been in recovery for 26 months, went out with an old friend, had alcohol, had opiates. That friend brought him back home. Uh, helped him walk upstairs, let him lie down on his own bed, stayed with him till he could no longer get him awake. Went downstairs, woke up my grandson's father, who immediately saw the situation, called 911. The first thing that happened then was the young man that was with him fled the house. He ran from the house for fear of being arrested for drugs. The second thing that didn't happen, there was no naloxone in the house. The law wasn't passed till 2014. So we didn't know about naloxone. So here is a person who's been in recovery, been through a, a six-month treatment program at a fine institution in Atlanta. Everyone knew he was at risk. We had no naloxone. The police, the city police, were the first ones to arrive on the scene. They did not have naloxone. Neither were they trained in how to give first aid. So by the time then that EMS arrived, it was actually too late. So while any one of those things, if the, the boy had realized he had amnesty and called 911, if we'd had naloxone in the home and had administered that, if we knew basic overdose first aid of how to sustain that life till help comes, any one of those could change the outcome of that. So this law is huge. Mm-hmm. This law is really, really big to save lives. Dr. Saha, talk about from a family perspective, you're a, a medical professional in this particular space. And, and so if I'm a family member, I mean, what do I need to be watching out for? Uh, my daughter's 13, going to be 13 in July, coming into that age range where things start to you know, slowly percolate around the, those age groups and beyond, obviously. So what should I watch out for to make me hopefully catch that process developing earlier than later? So the American Academy for Pediatrics recommends that parents start talking to their kids about drugs at age nine, which seems like such an early age. Um, but it's actually they're introduced to those messages through media and through school and through things like that anyway. 
Um, and so I think one of the most protective things for a young person is to be connected to their parent. Um, and so starting the conversation early and the early conversation does not have to be don't do heroin because that would be very inappropriate for a nine year old. But to say, hey, you know, we were at a wedding and you saw Uncle Richard drunk. What did you think about that? Those types of conversations or or reflecting on song lyrics, because there are so many of them that ref- you know talk about glorified drug use. Adolescence is a period of drastic mood changes, of a lot of the things that I would say if you had an adult in your life that started to be more moody, more sleepy, less sleepy, more talkative, less talkative, you know, those would be really easy warning signs. But in adolescence, it's a little more challenging because they're, they're, going, through yeah. their, they're going through adolescence. Yes. So, so I think it's about drastic changes. If you have a very talkative kid that, sometime, that all of a sudden is now isolating in the dark, doesn't talk to you, doesn't want to come to the dinner table, you, know, you need to start asking more questions. And those questions might not be immediately, do you do drugs? But, um, you know, just starting to understand what, what has changed to cause this change. Or the opposite, you know, opiates actually in the beginning are very activating. They don't necessarily put you to sleep right away. So if you have a kid that, you know, sometimes is coming home and is just super chatty out of nowhere, um, that could be marijuana and it's likely marijuana. Um, because that's the thing that our youth abuse the most. But it's also possible that it could be prescription pills. Um, but I think the, the on it's not about the talk with your kid. It's about the talks. It's about a series of, of talks throughout their adolescent development, establishing a relationship of trust, understanding who their peer groups are, making sure you know about those people and what they're up to, um, because the peer group really is uh, going to dictate their own risk factors and their own choices. Um, you know, the family dinner is actually an incredibly protective thing against substance use. Um, because it's a way to keep uh, engaged with your kid. And I will say that while I see a lot of young people who had very healthy childhoods, were never abused or were never um, molested, were fed and clothed and got sent to great private schools, um, they don't necessarily always feel very emotionally connected or supported from their families. That doesn't mean that that's the truth for all kids who are addicted because, sure. again, a lot of this is just the environment that they're in. But I think the most protective thing to do is to stay connected to your kid. And parents more than anything know when something is up. Um, so if that is coming up for you, then start to ask questions. In talking to a good friend of mine whose son, he he didn't pass away from from his experience, but had dealt with prescription drug abuse. And I know for them as a husband and wife, it was very difficult for them going through just getting their arms around the fact that that was the case. You know, didn't really, when she was going through the process that you were talking about. Something's going on. I know that something's going on and was able to discover it, but the the husband was very reticent to accept that that was mm-hmm. the situation. And I think that that's a key for, for family members is to not, is to, it's, I understand when, if, if your child doesn't hit the ball as well as everybody else, or doesn't make the grades as the other kids, much less if they have an issue like this, it's either emotional or in this case, dealing with drug use, that it's hard to want to swallow that pill per se to use a bad pun. Yeah. But but I mean, I, I think being able to push past that and just treat the treat the treat the health issue, you're you're gonna be able to have a greater chance of turning things around and have a great outcome. Yeah, and unfortunately if that doesn't happen, the situation will progress and your kid will school you in a way you've never been schooled before. I would I would say of all the places I've spoke, most parents were behind the curve. Yeah. They they are always behind the level of abuse that's going on until it's too late, and then they're scrambling for what to do. And one other quick comment, too. Genetics play a huge role in addiction, and it's something that our medical community really needs to monitor more in terms of family history. Because if it's a genetic connection, about the numbers I've heard, about 70 75% of people who become addicted 
had a genetic link back up the line there. That's so important to know. And if your child, you know, your father or your mother or uncle was an addict, I would be more careful with my child then that they didn't receive that genetic link. Yeah, I often tell parents, you know, if you have a strong family history of diabetes, you need you need to help your kid exercise. And if you have a strong family history of addiction, you need to educate your kid that when they take a drink, they're putting themselves at risk for for a lifelong addiction, unlike maybe their peers. Um, but I think that's also a big barrier to parents being truthful. Is sometimes parents have their own insecurities about their own substance use, and that stops them from, or saying, or you know, when I was in high school, I did this, I did that. It wasn't a problem. And what we like to say is it's not that you made it because you use drugs or alcohol. You made it in spite of that fact. Right. And the fact that you continue to drink doesn't mean that your son does not need to stop using prescription pills. Um, they can be completely two different realities. So with regards to what we're talking about here, particularly with the Think About It campaign and Project Dan and, and other initiatives around this effort, how are you funding this? I mean, I would assume that there's you're trying to find some community resources, perhaps, that will get involved. Uh, talk about how we're trying to make this happen on a bigger scale. Well, I, I want to make one plug because there's something very important happening today in the Senate, in the U.S. Senate. There's something called the uh, CARA bill, which is the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, which is a very robust bill for funding of treatment and research. And it um, was just debated last night in the Senate. They decided to talk about it for the next 30 hours. So they will vote on it either later today or tomorrow. So if you have a senator Everyone does. Please call your Senate's office. If you don't know who your senator is, you can go to Senate.gov. And that will increase federal funding for addiction services. I think there's a lot of on the ground trying to get foundation work here. And I'll let Mr. Gay talk about their incredible successes with that. But this is much bigger than something that independent foundations can probably handle. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Uh, the, the current U.S. budget has, has a large amount of money budgeted for that. But what we're trying to do at Medical Association of Georgia Foundation is all private money. Uh, we've received no no federal funds, no government funds, and uh, we go to we go to wherever we can find that money. We were extremely fortunate that the Medical Center Foundation in Gainesville uh, accepted our proposal to do this project, Dan. But once that money is spent, we've got to replace it again through private donations. So our website is rxdrugabuse.org. Uh, has a way that people can participate. It has a lot of good information uh, in it about uh, drug abuse and naloxone and Project Dan. It also has a way that people can donate if they would choose to support the program. Any other online or social media resources that folks need to be aware of for either of you? I think there are a couple of great websites if you're interested in naloxone in particular. One is the Georgia Overdose Prevention uh, Organization. It's gaoverdoseprevention.org. There are videos, there's testimonies. There's also a link to get free, there's information to get free naloxone if you can't get it through your own pharmacist or, or physician, excuse me. And then the prescribetoprevent.org is another national website that has training videos, that has information per, for prescribers. If you're a physician, it's very easy. You just print off a pre-printed script, sign it, and give it to your patient when you give them uh, any type of opiate if they're struggling with addiction or have it in their household. The American Society for Addiction Medicine has an advocacy page that they've just developed with toolkits around the opiate epidemic. So that's another great resource for both physicians and for policy folks. And there's another resource that you can reach out to if you're interested in making a donation to the Think About It campaign. You can contact Lori Cassidy Murphy at 
6783039282 again it's 6783039282 or l murphy m u r p h y at mag.org she can get you information to facilitate you being able to support this program or others that you may be interested in providing some resources for do we have any final thoughts from you all before i get you all back to the rest of your afternoon i just want to say that if you're a, f- a person out there who's even wondering whether or not this is affecting your family that you should get help to find out whether or not that's the truth. And that this is something that is, like Mr. Gay said, we're way under detecting this. So we really are relying on physicians and community members to give attention where attention is needed for anyone who's struggling with substances. Who do you think the first call should be to, do you think, for advice? This is what I think is happening. Who do you recommend? I would love to say your family physician, but not all family physicians are positive around that. Some of them actually penalize you for that. So um, I think that really it's about who you feel is trusted in your life. So sometimes that's a pastor. Sometimes that's a pediatrician. Sometimes that's a a psychiatrist. If that is not the case, then um, you could always call my office (laughs) and I am more than happy to help. Um, And um, ASAM itself has a a registry of all the physicians in all the states who are addiction specialists. And so um, physicians who don't feel comfortable when this comes into their offices can also look at that database to see if there's a colleague in their area they can refer to. Uh, share information about your practice since that's the sure. focus of your I am at on the campus of the Ridgeview Institute. I'm also an attending there. So I, I see patients there for detox and I also take care of patients in drug treatment there. And then on that physical campus, I have an office. The number for the office is 770-431-2354. And I am taking patients of all types of insurances and, and anybody ages 12 and up. I was going to say, one of the biggest challenges is getting past that stigma of addiction. Yeah. Uh, parents are ashamed of what their child has done. It's bad behavior. But what starts as bad behavior goes to abuse. And then when it goes to addiction, it's a disease. It's a medical condition. Time and time again, parents in particular will not recognize that. They swelter under the shame of, I've got an addict in my house. We have to break through that. And physicians can help do that. I might also point out there there's some new guidelines, several new guidelines have been published for physicians on prescribing. The AMA has a new set of guidelines for it. Uh, the American Society, uh, American Pain Society, uh, new information. Our own website, uh, Dr. Tennant Schleich, has a set of guidelines for prescribing. All those are available for physicians now to go to and, and help make a difference. And, and it's only with the physician's help and support that we're going to make a difference. Well, as Dallas was talking about, if you want more information, you get over to the website rxdrugabuse.org. And then, of course, the host of information resources that Shanali Saha was sharing uh, earlier. Make sure that you get educated and get access to the, the resources that you need that will provide some great advice um, and get your, hopefully, your family member back on track. I also have a website, wholeandhealthyyouth.com. If all else fails and you can't reach me other way, any other way, you can get me through that website. Excellent. Thank you to both of you for making time to join us here in the studio. And then for the folks that are coming back and are checking out the podcast, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us so that you have the, da- the, the weekly episode downloaded straight to your device when it comes out for the ride to work, walking the dog, whatever the case may be. And please turn around and share this with your social media networks. 
You just might be putting some information in the hands of someone that you care about. Maybe you don't know it, but uh, it really makes a difference. In this case, it could end up up saving somebody's life. Um, So we hope that you turn around and share this information for us as well. And we'll thank you in advance for that. To uh, Tom Cornegay, Donald Pomisano, Lori Cassidy Murphy, and uh, all the folks over at Medical Association of Georgia, want to say thank you for being a partner in our show. Clearly, this is another example of the way that MAG is advocating on behalf of the health of the people that live here in the state of Georgia. So we're really pleased to give them a voice in the media. And uh, to all the folks out there who made us a part of their day today, I want to say thank you very much. We really appreciate your time. We'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 